Part Two of Dred Scott versus Sanford. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Robinson in Birmingham, Alabama. Dred Scott versus Sanford: An Opinion of the United States Supreme Court, Part Two. It would be impossible to enumerate and compress in the space usually allotted to an opinion of a court the various laws marking the condition of this race, which were passed from time to time after the Revolution and before and since the adoption of the Constitution of the United States. In addition to those already referred to, it is sufficient to say that Chancellor Kent, whose accuracy and research no one will question, states in the sixth edition of his commentaries that in no part of the country except maine did the african race in point of fact participate equally with the whites in the exercise of civil and political rights the legislation of the states therefore shows in a manner not to be mistaken the inferior and subject condition of that race at the time the constitution was adopted and long afterwards throughout the thirteen states by which that instrument was framed and it is hardly consistent with the respect due to these states to suppose that they regarded at that time as fellow-citizens and members of the sovereignty class of beings whom they had thus stigmatized whom as we are bound out of respect to the state sovereignties to assume they had deemed it just and necessary thus to stigmatize and upon whom they had impressed such deep and enduring marks of inferiority and degradation or that when they met in convention to form the constitution they looked upon them as a portion of their constituents or designed to include them in the provisions so carefully inserted for the security and protection of the liberties and rights of their citizens it cannot be supposed that they intended to secure to them rights and privileges and rank in the new political body throughout the union which every one of them denied within the limits of its own dominion more especially it cannot be believed that the large slaveholding states regarded them as included in the word citizens or would have consented to a constitution which might compel them to receive them in that character from another state for if they were so received and entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens it would exempt them from the operation of the special laws and from the police regulations which they considered to be necessary for their own safety it would give to persons of the negro race who were recognized as citizens in any one state of the union the right to enter every other state whenever they pleased singly or in companies without pass or passport and without obstruction to sojourn there as long as they pleased to go where they pleased at every hour of the day or night without molestation unless they committed some violation of law for which a white man would be punished and it would give them the full liberty of speech in public and in private upon all subjects upon which its own citizens might speak to hold public meetings upon political affairs and to keep and carry arms wherever they went and all of this would be done in the face of the subject race of the same color both free and slaves and inevitably producing discontent and insubordination among them and endangering the peace and safety of the state 
it is impossible it would seem to believe that the great men of the slaveholding states who took so large a share in framing the constitution of the united states and exercised so much influence in procuring its adoption could have been so forgetful or regardless of their own safety and the safety of those who trusted and confided in them besides this want of foresight and care would have been utterly inconsistent with the caution displayed in providing for the admission of new members into this political family for when they gave to the citizens of each state the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states they at the same time took from the several states the power of naturalization and confined that power exclusively to the federal government no state was willing to permit another state to determine who should or should not be admitted as one of its citizens and entitled to demand equal rights and privileges with their own people within their own territories the right of naturalization was therefore with one accord surrendered by the states and confided to the federal government and this power granted to congress to establish a uniform rule of naturalization is by the well understood meaning of the word confined to persons born in a foreign country under a foreign government it is not a power to raise to the rank of a citizen any one born in the united states who from birth or parentage by the laws of the country belongs to an inferior and subordinate class and when we find the states guarding themselves from the indiscreet or improper admission by other states of emigrants from other countries by giving the power exclusively to congress we cannot fail to see that they could never have left with the states a much more important power that is the power of transforming into citizens a numerous class of persons who in that character would be much more dangerous to the peace and safety of a large portion of the union than the few foreigners one of the states might improperly naturalize the constitution upon its adoption obviously took from the states all power by any subsequent legislation to introduce as a citizen into the political family of the united states any one no matter where he was born or what might be his character or condition and it gave to congress the power to confer this character upon those only who were born outside of the dominions of the united states and no law of a state therefore passed since the constitution was adopted can give any right of citizenship outside of its own territory a clause similar to the one in the constitution in relation to the rights and immunities of citizens of one state in the other states was contained in the articles of confederation but there is a difference of language which is worthy of note the provision in the articles of confederation was that the free inhabitants of each of the states paupers vagabonds and fugitives from justice accepted should be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states it will be observed that under this confederation each state had the right to decide for itself and in its own tribunals whom it would acknowledge as a free inhabitant of another state the term free inhabitant in the generality of its terms would certainly include one of the african race who had been manumitted but no example we think can be found of his admission to all the privileges of citizenship in any state of the union after these articles were formed and while they continued in force and notwithstanding the generality of the words free inhabitants it is very clear that according to their accepted meaning in that day they did not include the african race whether free or not for the fifth section 
of the ninth article provides that Congress should have the power to agree upon the number of land forces to be raised and to make requisitions from each state for its quota in proportion to the number of white inhabitants in such state, which requisition should be binding. Words could hardly have been used which more strongly mark the line of distinction between the citizen and the subject, the free and the subjugated races. The latter were not even counted when the inhabitants of a state were to be embodied in proportion to its numbers for the general defense. And it cannot for a moment be supposed that a class of persons thus separated and rejected from those who formed the sovereignty of the states were yet intended to be included under the words free inhabitants in the preceding article to whom privileges and immunities were so carefully secured in every state but although this clause of the articles of confederation is the same in principle with that inserted in the constitution yet the comprehensive word inhabitant which might be construed to include an emancipated slave is omitted and the privilege is confined to citizens of the state and this alteration in words would hardly have been made unless a different meaning was intended to be conveyed or a possible doubt removed the just and fair inference is that as this privilege was about to be placed under the protection of the general government and the words expounded by its tribunals and all power in relation to it taken from the state and its courts it was deemed prudent to describe with precision and caution the persons to whom this high privilege was given and the word citizen was on that account substituted for the words free inhabitant the word citizen excluded and no doubt intended to exclude foreigners who had not become citizens of some one of the states when the constitution was adopted and also every description of persons who were not fully recognized as citizens in the several states this upon any fair construction of the instruments to which we have referred was evidently the object and purpose of this change of words to all this mass of proof we have still to add that congress has repeatedly legislated upon the same construction of the constitution that we have given three laws two of which were passed almost immediately after the government went into operation will be abundantly sufficient to show this the two first are particularly worthy of notice because many of the men who assisted in framing the constitution and took an active part in procuring its adoption were then in the halls of legislation and certainly understood what they meant when they used the words people of the united states and citizen in that well-considered instrument the first of these acts is the naturalization law which was passed at the second session of the first congress march twenty sixth seventeen ninety and confines the right of becoming citizens to aliens being free white persons now the constitution does not limit the power of congress in this respect to white persons and they may if they think proper authorize the naturalization of any one of any color who was born under allegiance to another government but the language of the law above quoted shows that citizenship at that time was perfectly understood to be confined to the white race and that they alone constituted the sovereignty in the government congress might as we before said have authorized the naturalization of indians because they were aliens and foreigners but in their then untutored and savage state no one would have thought of admitting them as citizens in a civilized community 
and, moreover, the atrocities they had but recently committed, when they were the allies of Great Britain in the Revolutionary War, were yet fresh in the recollection of the people of the United States, and they were even then guarding themselves against the threatened renewal of Indian hostilities. No one supposed then that any Indian would ask for, or was capable of enjoying, the privileges of an American citizen, and the word white was not used with any particular reference to them. Neither was it used with any reference to the African race imported into or born in this country, because Congress had no power to naturalize them, and therefore there was no necessity for using particular words to exclude them. It would seem to have been used merely because it followed out the line of division which the Constitution has drawn between the citizen race, who formed and held the government, and the African race, which they held in subjection and slavery, and governed at their own pleasure. Another of the early laws of which we have spoken is the first militia law, which was passed in 1792, at the first session of the Second Congress. The language of this law is equally plain and significant with the one just mentioned. It directs that every free, able-bodied white male citizen shall be enrolled in the militia. The word white is evidently used to exclude the African race, and the word citizen to exclude unnaturalized foreigners, the latter forming no part of the sovereignty, owing it no allegiance, and therefore under no obligation to defend it. The African race, however, born in the country, did owe allegiance to the government, whether they were slave or free. But it is repudiated and rejected from the duties and obligations of citizenship in marked language. The third act to which we have alluded is even still more decisive. It was passed as late as 1813, and it provides that from and after the termination of the war in which the United States are now engaged with Great Britain, it shall not be lawful to employ, on board of any public or private vessels of the United States, any person or persons except citizens of the United States, or persons of color, natives of the United States. Here the line of distinction is drawn in express words, persons of color, in the judgment of Congress, were not included in the word citizens, and they are described as another and different class of persons, and authorized to be employed, if born, in the United States. And even as late as 1820, in the charter to the city of Washington, the corporation is authorized to restrain and prohibit the nightly and other disorderly meetings of slaves, free Negroes, and mulattoes thus associating them together in its legislation, and after prescribing the punishment that may be inflicted on the slaves, proceeds in the following words, and to punish such free Negroes and mulattoes by penalties not exceeding $20 for any one offense, and in case of the inability of any such free Negro or mulatto to pay any such penalty and cost thereon, to cause him or her to be confined to labor for any time not exceeding six calendar months, and in a subsequent part of the same section, the Act authorizes the corporation to prescribe the terms and conditions upon which free Negroes and mulattoes may reside in the city. This law, like the laws of the states, shows that this class of persons were governed by special legislation directed expressly to them, and always connected with provisions for the government of slaves, and not with those for the government of free white citizens, 
and after such a uniform course of legislation as we have stated, by the colonies, by the states, and by Congress, running through a period of more than a century, it would seem that to call persons thus marked and stigmatized citizens of the United States, fellow citizens, a constituent part of the sovereignty, would be an abuse of terms, and not calculated to exalt the character of an American citizen in the eyes of other nations. The conduct of the executive department of the government has been in perfect harmony upon this subject with this course of legislation. The question was brought officially before the late William Wirt, when he was the Attorney General of the United States in 1821, and he decided that the words citizens of the United States were used in the acts of Congress in the same sense as in the Constitution, and that free persons of color were not citizens within the meaning of the Constitution and laws. And this opinion has been confirmed by that of the late Attorney General Caleb Cushing in a recent case and acted upon by the Secretary of State who refused to grant passports to them as citizens of the United States. And it is said that a person may be a citizen and entitled to that character, although he does not possess all the rights which may belong to other citizens, as, for example, the right to vote or to hold particular offices, and that yet, when he goes into another state, he is entitled to be recognized there as a citizen, although the state may measure his rights by the rights which it allows to persons of a like character or class resident in the state, and refuse to him the full rights of citizenship. This argument overlooks the language of the provision in the Constitution of which we are speaking. Undoubtedly, a person may be a citizen, that is, a member of the community who form the sovereignty, although he exercises no share of the political power and is incapacitated from holding particular offices. Women and minors who form a part of the political family cannot vote, and when a property qualification is required to vote or hold a particular office, those who have not the necessary qualification cannot vote or hold the office, yet they are citizens. So, too, a person may be entitled to vote by the law of the state, who is not a citizen, even of the state itself. And in some of the states of the Union, foreigners not naturalized are allowed to vote. And the state may give the right to free Negroes and mulattoes, but that does not make them citizens of the state, and still less of the United States. And the provision in the Constitution giving privileges and immunities in other states does not apply to them. Neither does it apply to a person who, being the citizen of a state, migrates to another state, for then he becomes subject to the laws of the state in which he lives, and he is no longer a citizen of the state from which he removed. And the state in which he resides may then unquestionably determine his status or condition, and place him among the class of persons who are not recognized as citizens, but belong to an inferior and subject race, and may deny him the privileges and immunities enjoyed by its citizens. But so far as mere rights of person are concerned, the provision in question is confined to citizens of a state who are temporarily in another state without taking up their residence there. It gives them no political rights in the state, as to voting or holding office, or in any other respect. For a citizen of one state has no right to participate in the government of another. But if he ranks as a citizen in the state to which he belongs, within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States, then, whenever he goes into another state, the Constitution clothes him as the rights of person with all the privileges and immunities which belong to citizens of the state. And if persons of the African race are citizens of a state, and of the United States, 
they would be entitled to all of these privileges and immunities in every state, and the state could not restrict them, for they would hold these privileges and immunities under the paramount authority of the federal government, and its courts would be bound to maintain and enforce them, the Constitution and laws of the state to the contrary notwithstanding. And if the states could limit or restrict them, or place the party in an inferior grade, this clause of the Constitution would be unmeaning, and could have no operation, and would give no rights to the citizen when in another state. He would have none but what the state itself chose to allow him. This is evidently not the construction or meaning of the clause in question. It guarantees rights to the citizen, and the state cannot withhold them, and these rights are of a character and would lead to consequences which make it absolutely certain that the African race were not included under the name of citizens of a state, and were not in the contemplation of the framers of the Constitution, when these privileges and immunities were provided for the protection of the citizen in other states. The case of Legrand versus Darnall has been referred to for the purpose of showing that this court has decided that the descendant of a slave may sue as a citizen in a court of the United States. But the case itself shows that the question did not arise and could not have arisen in the case. It appears from the report that Darnall was born in Maryland and was the son of a white man by one of his slaves. And his father executed certain instruments to manumit him and devised to him some landed property in the state. This property Darnall afterwards sold to Legrand, the appellant, who gave his notes for the purchase money. But becoming afterwards apprehensive that the appellee had not been emancipated according to the laws of Maryland, he refused to pay the notes until he could be better satisfied as to Darnall's right to convey. Darnall, in the meantime, had taken up his residence in Pennsylvania and brought suit on the notes, and recovered judgment in the circuit court for the District of Maryland. The whole proceeding, as appears by the report, was an amicable one, Legrand being perfectly willing to pay the money if he could obtain a title, and Darnall not wishing him to pay unless he could make him a good one. In point of fact, the whole proceeding was under the direction of the counsel who argued the case for the appellee, who was the mutual friend of the parties, and confided in by both of them, and whose only object was to have the rights of both parties established by judicial decision in the most speedy and least expensive manner. Legrand, therefore, raised no objection to the jurisdiction of the court in the suit at law, because he was himself anxious to obtain the judgment of the court upon his title. Consequently, there was nothing in the record before the court to show that Darnall was of African descent, and the usual judgment and award of execution was entered. And Legrand thereupon filed his bill, on the equity side of the circuit court, stating that Darnall was born a slave, and had not been legally emancipated, and could not therefore take the land devised to him, nor make Legrand a good title, and praying an injunction to restrain Darnall from proceeding to execution on the judgment which was granted. Darnall answered, averring in his answer that he was a free man, and capable of conveying a good title. Testimony was taken on this point, and at the hearing the circuit court was of opinion that Darnall was a free man, and his title good, and dissolved the injunction and dismissed the bill, and that decree was affirmed here, upon the appeal of Legrand. Now, it is difficult to imagine how any question about the citizenship of Darnall or his right to sue in that character can be supposed to have arisen or been decided in that case. The fact that he was of African descent 
was first brought before the court upon the bill in equity. The suit at law had then passed into judgment and a word of execution, and the circuit court, as a court of law, had no longer any authority over it. It was a valid and legal judgment, which the court that rendered it had not the power to reverse or set aside, and unless it had jurisdiction as a court of equity to restrain him from using its process as a court of law, Darnall, if he thought proper, would have been at liberty to proceed on his judgment and compel the payment of the money, although the allegations in the bill were true, and he was incapable of making a title. No other court could have enjoined him, for certainly no state equity court could interfere in that way with the judgment of a circuit court of the United States. But the circuit court, as a court of equity, certainly had equity jurisdiction over its own judgment as a court of law, without regard to the character of the parties, and had not only the right, but it was its duty, no matter who were the parties in the judgment, to prevent them from proceeding to enforce it by execution, if the court was satisfied that the money was not justly and equitably due. The ability of Darnall to convey did not depend upon his citizenship, but upon his title to freedom. And if he was free, he could hold and convey property by the laws of Maryland, although he was not a citizen. But if he was by law still a slave, he could not. It was therefore the duty of the court, sitting as a court of equity in the latter case, to prevent him from using its process as a court of common law to compel the payment of the purchase money when it was evident that the purchaser might lose the land. But if he was free and could make a title, it was equally the duty of the court not to suffer Legrand to keep the land and refuse the payment of the money upon the ground that Darnall was incapable of suing or being sued as a citizen in a court of the United States. The character or citizenship of the parties had no connection with the question of jurisdiction, and the matter in dispute had no relation to the citizenship of Darnall, nor is such a question alluded to in the opinion of the court. Besides, we are by no means prepared to say that there are not many cases, civil as well as criminal, in which a circuit court of the United States may exercise jurisdiction, although one of the African race is a party. That broad question is not before the court. The question with which we are now dealing is whether a person of the African race can be a citizen of the United States and become thereby entitled to a special privilege by virtue of his title to that character, and which, under the Constitution, no one but a citizen can claim. It is manifest that the case of Legrand and Darnall has no bearing on that question and can have no application to the case now before the court. This case, however, strikingly illustrates the consequences that would follow the construction of the Constitution, which would give the power contended for to a state. It would, in effect, give it also to an individual. For if the father of young Darnall had manumitted him in his lifetime and sent him to reside in a state which recognized him as a citizen, he might have visited and sojourned in Maryland when he pleased, and as long as he pleased, as a citizen of the United States, and the state officers and tribunals would be compelled by the paramount authority of the Constitution to receive him and treat him as one of its citizens, exempt from the laws and police of the state in relation to a person of that description, and allow him to enjoy all the rights and privileges of citizenship without respect to the laws of Maryland, although such laws were deemed by it absolutely essential to its own safety. The only two provisions which point to them and include them treat them as property and make it the duty of the government to protect it, 
no other power in relation to this race is to be found in the constitution and as it is a government of special delegated powers no authority beyond these two provisions can be constitutionally exercised the government of the united states had no right to interfere for any other purpose but that of protecting the rights of the owner leaving it altogether with the several states to deal with this race whether emancipated or not as each state may think justice humanity and the interests and safety of society require the states evidently intended to reserve this power exclusively to themselves no one we presume supposes that any change in public opinion or feeling in relation to this unfortunate race in the civilized nations of europe or in this country should induce the court to give to the words of the constitution a more liberal construction in their favor than they were intended to bear when the instrument was framed and adopted such an argument would be altogether inadmissible in any tribunal called on to interpret it if any of its provisions are deemed unjust there is a mode prescribed in the instrument itself by which it may be amended but while it remains unaltered it must be construed now as it was understood at the time of its adoption it is not only the same in words but the same in meaning and delegates the same powers to the government and reserves and secures the same rights and privileges to the citizen and as long as it continues to exist in its present form it speaks not only in the same words but with the same meaning and intent with which it spoke when it came from the hands of its framers and was voted on and adopted by the people of the united states any other rule of construction would abrogate the judicial character of this court and make it the mere reflex of the popular opinion or passion of the day this court was not created by the constitution for such purposes higher and graver trusts have been confided to it and it must not falter in the path of duty what the construction was at that time we think can hardly admit of doubt we have the language of the declaration of independence and of the articles of confederation in addition to the plain words of the constitution itself we have the legislation of the different states before about the time and since the constitution was adopted we have the legislation of congress from the time of its adoption to a recent period and we have the constant and uniform action of the executive department all concurring together and leading to the same result and if anything in relation to the construction of the constitution can be regarded as settled it is that which we now give to the word citizen and the word people and upon a full and careful consideration of the subject the court is of the opinion that upon the facts stated in the plea and abatement dred scott was not a citizen of missouri within the meaning of the constitution of the united states and not entitled as such to sue in its courts and consequently that the circuit court had no jurisdiction of the case and that the judgment on the plea in abatement is erroneous we are aware that doubts are entertained by some of the members of the court whether the plea in abatement is legally before the court upon this writ of error but if that plea is regarded as waived or out of the case upon any other ground yet the question as to the jurisdiction of the circuit court is presented on the face of the bill of exception itself taken by the plaintiff at the trial for he admits that he and his wife were born slaves but endeavors to make out his title to freedom and citizenship by showing that they were taken by their owner to certain places here and after mentioned where slavery could not by law exist and that they thereby became free and upon their return to missouri became citizens of that state 
Now, if the removal of which he speaks did not give them their freedom, then by his own admission he is still a slave, and whatever opinions may be entertained in favor of the citizenship of a free person of the African race, no one supposes that a slave is a citizen of the state or of the United States. If, therefore, the acts done by his owner did not make them free persons, he is still a slave and certainly incapable of suing in the character of a citizen. The principle of law is too settled to be disputed, that a court can give no judgment for either party where it has no jurisdiction. And if, upon the showing of Scott himself, it appears that he was still a slave, the case ought to have been dismissed, and the judgment against him, and in favor of the defendant for costs, is, like that on the plea in abatement, erroneous, and the suit ought to have been dismissed by the circuit court for want of jurisdiction in that court. But, before we proceed to examine this part of the case, it may be proper to notice an objection taken to the judicial authority of this court to decide it. And it has been said that as this court has decided against the jurisdiction of the circuit court on the plea in abatement, it has no right to examine any question presented by the exception, and that anything it may say upon that part of the case will be extrajudicial and mere obiter dicta. This is a manifest mistake. There can be no doubt as to the jurisdiction of this court to revise the judgment of a circuit court and to reverse it for any error apparent on the record whether it be the error of giving judgment in a case over which it had no jurisdiction, or any other material error, and this, too, whether there is a plea in abatement or not. The objection appears to have arisen from confounding writs of error to a state court, with writs of error to a circuit court of the United States. Undoubtedly, upon a writ of error to a state court, unless the record shows a case that gives jurisdiction, the case must be dismissed for want of jurisdiction in this court. And if it is dismissed on that ground, we have no right to examine and decide upon any question presented by the Bill of Exceptions, or any other part of the record. But writs of error to a state court, and to a circuit court of the United States, are regulated by different laws, and stand upon entirely different principles. And in a writ of error to a circuit court of the United States, the whole record is before this court for examination and decision. And if the sum in controversy is large enough to give jurisdiction, it is not only the right, but it is the judicial duty of the court to examine the whole case as presented by the record. And if it appears upon its face that any material error or errors have been committed by the court below, it is the duty of this court to reverse the judgment and remand the case. And certainly an error in passing a judgment upon the merits in favor of either party in a case which it was not authorized to try, and over which it had no jurisdiction, is as grave an error as a court can commit. The plea in abatement is not a plea to the jurisdiction of this court, but to the jurisdiction of the circuit court, and it appears by the record before us that the circuit court committed an error in deciding that it had jurisdiction upon the facts in the case, admitted by the pleadings. It is the duty of the appellate tribunal to correct this error, but that could not be done by dismissing the case for want of jurisdiction here, for that would leave the erroneous judgment in full force, and the injured party without remedy. And the appellate court, therefore, exercises the power for which alone appellate courts are constituted, by reversing the judgment of the court below for this error. It exercises its proper and appropriate jurisdiction over the judgment and proceedings of the circuit court, as they appear upon the record brought up by the writ of error. The correction of one error in the court below does not deprive the appellate court of the power of examining further into the record, 
and correcting any other material errors which may have been committed by the inferior court. There is certainly no rule of law, nor any practice, nor any decision of a court, which even questions this power in the appellate tribunal. On the contrary, it is the daily practice of this court, and of all appellate courts, where they reverse the judgment of an inferior court for error, to correct by its opinions whatever errors may appear on the record material to the case, and they have always held it to be their duty to do so where the silence of the court might lead to misconstruction or future controversy, and the point has been relied on by either side and argued before the court. In the case before us, we have already decided that the circuit court erred in deciding that it had jurisdiction upon the facts admitted by the pleadings. And it appears that, in the further progress of the case, it acted upon the erroneous principle it had decided on the pleadings, and gave judgment for the defendant, where, upon the facts admitted in the exception, it had no jurisdiction. We are at a loss to understand upon what principle of law, applicable to appellate jurisdiction, it can be supposed that this court has not judicial authority to correct the last-mentioned error, because they had before corrected the former, or by what process of reasoning it can be made out, that the error of an inferior court in actually pronouncing judgment for one of the parties, in a case in which it had no jurisdiction, cannot be looked into or corrected by this court, because we have decided a similar question presented in the pleadings. The last point is distinctly presented by the facts contained in the plaintiff's own bill of exceptions, which he himself brings here by this writ of error. It was the point which chiefly occupied the attention of the counsel on both sides in the argument, and the judgment which this court must render upon both errors is precisely the same. It must, in each of them, exercise jurisdiction over the judgment and reverse it for the errors committed by the court below, and issue a mandate to the circuit court to conform its judgment to the opinion pronounced by this court by dismissing the case for want of jurisdiction in the circuit court. This is the constant and invariable practice of this court, where it reverses a judgment for want of jurisdiction in the circuit court. It can scarcely be necessary to pursue such a question further. The want of jurisdiction in the court below may appear on the record without any plea in abatement. This is familiarly the case where a court of chancery has exercised jurisdiction in a case where the plaintiff had a plain and adequate remedy at law, and it so appears by the transcript when brought here by appeal. So also where it appears that a court of admiralty has exercised jurisdiction in a case belonging exclusively to a court of common law. In these cases, there is no plea in abatement, and for the same reason and upon the same principles, where the defect of jurisdiction is patent on the record, this court is bound to reverse the judgment, although the defendant has not pleaded in abatement to the jurisdiction of the inferior court. The cases of Jackson versus Ashton and of Capron versus Van Noorden to which we have referred in a previous part of this opinion, are directly in point. In the last-mentioned case, Capron brought an action against Van Noorden in a circuit court of the United States, without showing, by the usual averments of citizenship, that the court had jurisdiction. There was no plea in abatement put in, and the parties went to trial upon the merits. The court gave judgment in favor of the defendant with costs. The plaintiff thereupon brought his writ of error, and this court reversed the judgment given in favor of the defendant and remanded the case with directions to dismiss it because it did not appear by the transcript that the circuit court had jurisdiction. The case before us still more strongly imposes upon this court the duty of examining whether the court below has not committed an error 
in taking jurisdiction and giving a judgment for costs in favor of the defendant. For in Capron versus Van Noorden, the judgment was reversed because it did not appear that the parties were citizens of different states. They might or might not be. But in this case, it does appear that the plaintiff was born a slave. And if the facts upon which he relies have not made him free, then it appears affirmatively on the record that he is not a citizen. And consequently, his suit against Sanford was not a suit between citizens of different states. And the court had no authority to pass any judgment between the parties. The suit ought, in this view of it, to have been dismissed by the circuit court, and its judgment in favor of Sanford is erroneous and must be reversed. It is true that the result either way, by dismissal or by a judgment for the defendant, makes very little, if any, difference in a pecuniary or personal point of view to either party. But the fact that the result would be very nearly the same to the parties in either form of judgment would not justify this court in sanctioning an error in the judgment which is patent on the record, and which, if sanctioned, might be drawn into precedent, and lead to serious mischief and injustice in some future suit. We proceed, therefore, to inquire whether the facts relied on by the plaintiff entitled him to his freedom. The case, as he himself states it, on the record brought here by his writ of error, is this. The plaintiff was a Negro slave, belonging to Dr. Emerson, who was a surgeon in the Army of the United States. In the year 1834, he took the plaintiff from the state of Missouri to the military post at Rock Island, in the state of Illinois, and held him there as a slave until the month of April or May, 1836. At the time last mentioned, said Dr. Emerson removed the plaintiff from said military post at Rock Island to the military post at Fort Snelling situate on the west bank of the Mississippi River, in the territory known as Upper Louisiana, acquired by the United States of France, and situate north of the latitude of 36 degrees, 30 minutes north, and north of the state of Missouri. Said Dr. Emerson held the plaintiff in slavery at said Fort Snelling from said last-mentioned date until the year 1838. In the year 1835, Harriet, who was named in the second count of the plaintiff's declaration, was the negro slave of major taliaferro who belonged to the army of the united states in that year eighteen thirty five said major taliaferro took said harriet to said fort snelling a military post situated as hereinbefore stated and kept her there as a slave until the year eighteen thirty six and then sold and delivered her as a slave at said fort snelling unto the said dr emerson hereinbefore named said dr emerson held said harriet in slavery at said fort snelling until the year eighteen thirty eight in the year eighteen thirty six the plaintiff and harriet intermarried at fort snelling with the consent of dr emerson who then claimed to be their master and owner eliza and lizzie named in the third count of the plaintiff's declaration are the fruit of that marriage eliza is about fourteen years old and was born on board the steamboat gypsy north of the north line of the state of Missouri, and upon the river Mississippi. Lizzie is about seven years old and was born in the state of Missouri at the military post called Jefferson Barracks. In the year 1838, said Dr. Emerson removed the plaintiff and said Harriet and their said daughter Eliza from said Fort Snelling to the state of Missouri, where they have ever since resided. Before the commencement of the suit, said Dr. Emerson sold and conveyed the plaintiff and Harriet, Eliza and Lizzie, to the defendant as slaves 
and the defendant has ever since claimed to hold them, and each of them, as slaves. In considering this part of the controversy, two questions arise. Number one, was he, together with his family, free in Missouri by reason of the stay in the territory of the United States herein before mentioned? And number two, if they were not, is Scott himself free by reason of his removal to Rock Island in the state of Illinois, as stated in the above admissions? We proceed to examine the first question. The act of Congress upon which the plaintiff relies declares that slavery and involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, shall be forever prohibited in all that part of the territory ceded by France, under the name of Louisiana, which lies north of the 36 degrees 30 minutes north latitude, and not included within the limits of Missouri. And the difficulty which meets us at the threshold of this part of the inquiry is whether Congress was authorized to pass this law under any of the powers granted to it by the Constitution. For if the authority is not given by that instrument, it is the duty of this court to declare it void and inoperative, and incapable of conferring freedom upon any one who is held as a slave under the have of any one of the states. The counsel for the plaintiff has laid much stress upon the article in the Constitution which confers on Congress the power to dispose of and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property belonging to the United States. But, in the judgment of the court, that provision has no bearing on the present controversy, and the power there given, whatever it may be, is confined and was intended to be confined to the territory which at that time belonged to, or was claimed by, the United States, and was within their boundaries as settled by the treaty with Great Britain, and can have no influence upon a territory afterwards acquired from a foreign government. It was a special provision for a known and particular territory, and to meet a present emergency and nothing more. A brief summary of the history of the times, as well as the careful and measured terms in which the article is framed, will show the correctness of this proposition. It will be remembered that, from the commencement of the Revolutionary War, serious difficulties existed between the states in relation to the disposition of large and unsettled territories which were included in the chartered limits of some of the states. And some of the other states, and more especially Maryland, which had no unsettled lands, insisted that, as the unoccupied lands, if wrested from Great Britain, would owe their preservation to the common purse and the common sword, the money arising from them ought to be applied in just proportion among the several states to pay the expenses of the war, and ought not to be appropriated to the use of the state in whose chartered limits they might happen to lie, to the exclusion of the other states by whose combined efforts and common expense the territory was defended and preserved against the claim of the British government. These difficulties caused much uneasiness during the war. While the issue was in some degree doubtful, and the future boundaries of the United States yet to be defined by treaty, if we achieved our independence, the majority of the Congress of the Confederation obviously concurred in opinion with the state of Maryland, and desired to obtain from the states which claimed it a cession of this territory, in order that Congress might raise money on this security to carry on the war. This appears by the resolution passed on the 6th of September, 1780, strongly urging the states to cede these lands to the United States, both for the sake of peace and union among themselves, and to maintain the public credit. And this was followed by the resolution of October 10th, 1780, by which Congress pledged itself that if the lands were ceded, 
as recommended by the resolution above mentioned, they should be disposed of for the common benefit of the United States, and be settled and formed into distinct Republican states, which should become members of the Federal Union, and have the same rights of sovereignty and freedom and independence as other states. But these difficulties became much more serious after peace took place, and the boundaries of the United States were established. Every state at that time felt severely pressure of its war debt, but in Virginia and some other states, there were large territories of unsettled lands, the sale of which would enable them to discharge their obligations without much inconvenience, while other states, which had no such resource, saw before them many years of heavy and burdensome taxation, and the latter insisted, for the reasons before stated, that these unsettled lands should be treated as the common property of the states, and the proceeds applied to their common benefit. The letters from the statesmen of that day will show how much this controversy occupied their thoughts, and the dangers that were apprehended from it. It was the disturbing element of the time, and fears were entertained that it might dissolve the confederation by which the states were then united. These fears and dangers were, however, at once removed, when the state of Virginia, in 1784, voluntarily ceded to the United States the immense tract of land lying northwest of the river Ohio, and which was within the acknowledged limits of the state. The only object of the state in making this session was to put an end to the threatening and exciting controversy, and to enable the Congress of that time to dispose of the lands and appropriate the proceeds as a common fund for the common benefit of the states. It was not ceded because it was inconvenient to the state to hold and govern it, nor from any expectation that it could be better or more conveniently governed by the United States. The example of Virginia was soon afterwards followed by other states, and at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, all of the states similarly situated had ceded their unappropriated lands, except North Carolina and Georgia. The main object for which these sessions were desired and made was on account of their money value, and to put an end to a dangerous controversy as to who was justly entitled to the proceeds when the lands should be sold. It is necessary to bring this part of the history of these sessions thus distinctly into view, because it will enable us the better to comprehend the phraseology of the article in the Constitution, so often referred to in the argument. Undoubtedly, the powers of sovereignty in the eminent domain were seated with the land. This was essential in order to make it effectual and to accomplish its objects. But it must be remembered that, at that time, there was no government of the United States in existence with enumerated and limited powers. What was then called the United States were 13 separate sovereign independent states which had entered into a league or confederation for their mutual protection and advantage, and the Congress of the United States was composed of the representatives of these separate sovereignties, meeting together as equals, to discuss and decide on certain measures which the states, by the Articles of Confederation, had agreed to submit to their decision. But this confederation had none of the attributes of sovereignty in legislative, executive, or judicial power. It was little more than a Congress of Ambassadors, authorized to represent separate nations in matters in which they had a common concern. End of Part 2